Pleasure to be with you again. see from the text that we have our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 59 and the New Testament from 1 John 1 and following. Let's give our attention now to God's Word. Behold, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue has muttered perversity. No one calls for justice, nor does any plead for truth. They trust in empty words and speak lies. They conceive evil and bring forth iniquity. They hatch vipers' eggs and weave the spider's web. He who eats of their eggs dies. And from that which is crushed, a viper breaks out. Their webs will not become garments, nor will they cover themselves with their works. Their works are works of iniquity. And the act of violence is in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. The way of peace they have not known, and there is no justice in their ways. They have made themselves crooked paths. Whoever takes that way shall not know peace. Therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness, for brightness but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes. We stumble at noonday as, as at twilight. We are as dead men in desolate places. We all growl like bears and moan sadly like doves. We look for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against the Lord and departing from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood. Justice is turned back, 
and righteousness stands far off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter, so truth fails. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. Then the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Let me just speak to this before we go to our New Testament passage for a minute, reminding myself and you that this is talking about the household of faith. This is talking about the people of God, their experience. In the context of the covenant, it's not talking about the unbelieving world. It's talking about the church. Our New Testament reading in 1 John begins at 1 one and will take us a little ways into the second chapter. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in Him. By this we know that we are in Him. He who says he abides in Him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from 
from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Last week, uh, as we gathered together, we looked at the instruction haloing around the Lord's instruction to his disciples concerning prayer. At what he told them to do when they prayed. This morning we're going to be looking at some of his cautions concerning prayer. How not to pray. Given our place in the history of God's dealings with men, this is important instruction for us. Because sin still indwells us. Those men and women who are found at the right hand of God on the day of judgment and brought into His presence forever in heaven, who will be with Him and like him will no longer have to concern themselves with do-nots. Every propensity of the glorified child of God will be only good continually. There will be no sin there. There will be no sinfulness there. There will be no propensity. There won't even be the ability to sin, because we will be with our Savior and like Him. We're not there yet. Even our first parents, created without sin, but able to sin, had do-nots to concern themselves with. They knew as they came forth fresh from the hand of God, that their principal duty was to glorify God and to enjoy Him. To love Him with all of their heart, mind, soul, and strength. They were without sin, but they were able to sin. And so God said, do not Go near the tree that bears the fruit of good and evil. Do not long for it. Do not touch it. Do not taste it. It was a very strict warning for our first parents. And as you know from the account in Genesis chapter 3, they failed that test. They looked on the fruit and desired it. 
They took it in hand and they ate it in direct rebellion against God. And in that day, they spiritually died. That was the wellspring. Their death, their rebellion, their sin was the beginning, the wellspring of all mankind's misery and woe. For their sin passed to their children and their sinfulness to their children down to the present age. And that's why from that time, including our first parents, there was a need of a Savior. It's one of the great blessings that we have in a Reformed context that the whole counsel of God is declared. We know from God's Word that He had a plan from before the foundation of the world that included the fall. For His purpose primarily was to reveal Himself to rational creatures, primarily angels and men, but even the lesser creatures. To show forth His wisdom, His power, and His glory. To be loved or to be hated. The whole history of mankind is the unpacking of his story. I love the way that the the word history, if you use two S's, turns into his story. Because that's what history is. It is his story. It's afforded him. It's, It's his chalkboard. It's his book in which he declares his wisdom, his power, and his glory in creation, in providence, and chiefly in the person and work of his Son. And this all bears on the subject of prayer. Why it's so difficult for you and I to pray. That's because of indwelling sin. Why it's so challenging for us to pray for the things we ought. Why it's so easy for us not to pray for the things that we shouldn't pray for. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, we have that uh, account of the Lord's instruction to his disciples concerning prayer. It's picking up at verse 5. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogue and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray... Do not 
use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they they will be heard for their many words. Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask. And then he goes on to teach them the Lord's Prayer. The Our Father. A model of simplicity and succinctness. God-centered. Dealing with the issue of sin and our creaturely needs. Acknowledging His ownership as the Creator. His merit. His glory. What we want to do today in balance with what we did last week is look at this negative side, these cautions uh, which pertain to prayer. And the scriptures contain many. These, we're just going to be looking at two that our Lord Jesus uh, sets before in teaching his disciples this prayer in the Gospel of Matthew. The scriptures have many exhortations, warnings, cautions, and if time allows, we'll, we'll look at a few of those at the end just to assure you and to encourage you to keep your eye out for them because it's important for us to know not only how we should walk, but how we shouldn't walk. How we should talk, but how we shouldn't talk. How we should think, but how we shouldn't think. How we should pray, and how we shouldn't pray as the children of God. First section, then, in our text is verses 5 and 6. And the warning about praying just to keep up appearances, just to maintain an appearance of prayerfulness, so that when people think of me or think of you, they think, Wow, he really prays a lot. When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, the public forum, and on the corners of the streets, seeking visibility that they may be seen by men. That's their primary objective. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Prayer is not about keeping up appearances before men. It's not about making impressions on those who hear us pray. It's not to earn the respect of men. The prayers that are acceptable to God are prayed to Him with a sense of having His ear And the one praying, however, whenever they pray, 
including in public, should pray with a sense of talking to God more than being heard by others. That's what our Lord Jesus is teaching here. That where that is absent, where that sense of being held captive to praying to God whenever we pray, there's a very good chance our prayers are not acceptable to God because He knows we're just praying to be heard by men. And we're not really praying to Him. We, we say the words, Our Father or Lord Jesus, but we're not really praying to Him. We're praying to be heard by others. Clearly, one can pray with others participating as in worship, as when Josh just prayed during the pastoral prayer time. And it can be, it's acceptable to God. Our Lord Jesus prayed with His disciples listening often. Those were all acceptable prayers. It isn't that you can't pray out loud with others around you, as we do in, as couples who are married, as families, as small groups, as the church. But there are dangers to be avoided. And our Lord Jesus is warning His disciples here about one that's significant. My early experience as a Christian, not as a saved man, was in a manifestation of the visible church that prayed a lot. I suspect most of those prayers were not pleasing to God. I'm capable today of praying in a way that's unacceptable to God, and so are you. The primary point that our Lord Jesus is making in verse 5 and 6 of Matthew 6 is pray to God as if it's just you and He. When you pray, be content to be in the secret place all alone with no one but God there listening. Even if you pray in public, your family, a small group, the whole congregation, Ask God to give you that sense of captivity to praying to Him. We've all seen some of those golf, I suspect most of us have seen some of those golf movies where the importance of focusing on what you're doing is a point, and they, they show the golfer, you know, he's at the tee getting ready to hop, and, the, and as, he, as his focus intensifies on what he's doing right now, the crowd disappears. And it's just him and the ball. It's just him and the fairway. It's just him and that little flag down there. I think that's what, the, what our Lord Jesus is encouraging the believer. That kind of focus. That kind of understanding that when we pray to God, it's 
my heart, my mind, my voice communicating to him. And it's okay, even if we're in the midst of others, to think that way. We should think that way. And it will, it will guard us, you see, against praying just to be heard by men. Obviously, one has to pray to, for this to be the case. And as we saw last week, that can be the biggest challenge. So I'll ask the question again. Do I pray? Do you pray? When do I pray? When do you pray? Do I pray? Do you pray when nobody else is listening except God? That will always be necessary for acceptable prayers to be heard by God. In other words, God needs to be listening. The reason I read that section of Isaiah this morning, passage of Scripture that's talking about the experience of God's people when sin has overwhelmed them and they've gotten so far away from maintaining a relationship with God that repentance is far from them. They've so marinated themselves in a self-justifying sense of this is okay. They're so far. Mind you, we're talking about probably many true believers. Probably not all, but many true believers Regenerated men and women. But they've gotten so tangled up with the stuff of life, the sinful stuff of life, sinful thoughts, sinful conversation, sinful behavior, sinful desires. And they, if they took the time to open God's Word, they'd be reminded, this is sin. I shouldn't be doing this. I shouldn't be thinking like this. I shouldn't be talking like this. I shouldn't. But they were walking in darkness. They didn't open the book of light. They didn't want the light to shine on them. So they'd know. And you and I felt the same thing, right? We try to hide ourselves. Try to hide our behavior. Try to hide our sin. Our anger. Our lust. Our covetousness. Because we know if it's out in the open, we're going to feel guilty. The starting point is always to go to God. If you need someone to help you do that, that's why God raised up Godly men and women. Maybe it's your parents or a parent. Maybe it's a brother or a sister. They need to be godly. They need to have a love of God in them. 
Maybe it's a minister. Maybe it's an elder. Maybe it's a deacon. Maybe it's a godly neighbor who's not even a member of the church where you go. But they're godly. They know God. They love God. They're praying to God. God can use them to help you get back into a cycle of prayer. It's always going to involve repentance, turning away from your sin. It's always going to be acknowledging your dependence on Him to work in you, that which is pleasing in His sight. Here's the really, really good news. If you're not a believer, you'll probably be convicted and by God's grace brought to the Savior. And if you are a child of God and are working through this experience, you're going to know the love of Christ, the power of Christ, the strength and sweetness of His love and care for you in a new and very dynamic way that will change your life for the, until you're with Him in glory. To have a restoration experience like this, like Isaiah was praying for the people of God. And you notice how he included himself in there. He knew from the beginning of his commissioning, I'm a people, I'm a sinful man who dwells among sinful people. I'm a man of unclean lips. Remember how God dealt with that? He didn't say, no, no, you're, you're saying too much. You know, you're saying too much. He didn't do that. He took a live coal and touched his lips with it. God did something to Isaiah. God changed him inwardly. That's what you and I need. Not just at the point of conversion, whereas we go from being children of darkness and death into being children of life and light. But we need that continually over the whole course of our, our life of sanctification. God holding us. God restoring us. God keeping us close to Himself. Turning us. We're not going to turn ourselves. The sin that's indwelling loves itself too much. We need Him to turn us. And that's what the Lord Jesus is teaching His disciples here. He's pointing to the religious, what the public regards as the religious leaders of the day. And he's telling his disciples, they're wrong. They're all wrong at this point. This matter of prayer. Warning there for ministers, elders, deacons, parents, officers. Your office doesn't protect you from getting it wrong. God does. Everybody from the little baby to the aged saint is, has to have a sense of being dependent on God. God saves sinners. God alone sanctifies sinners. The water of baptism can't do it. The bread and wine of the Lord's Supper can't do it. The hand of the minister or elders upon you in time of prayer can't do it. It isn't those things that changes sinners and that sanctifies his people. I mean, even opening God's word and reading it doesn't do it. God does. The God that we learn about in this book, the God 
whose sacrifice we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, the God who's able to purify sinners, forgive their sins, though they be the, the rant of hell. We look to God. That's what our Lord Jesus is teaching here. Don't trust in the device. Don't trust in the church. Don't trust in your office. Trust God. Look to God. Very, very important matter for prayer, acceptable prayer. Let's move on to the second point. 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8. When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do for they think that they will be heard for their many words do not be like them for your father knows the things you have need of before you ask him so our Lord Jesus points away from the church, the visible church, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites there, to the unbelieving nations round about who love, who think they have to cut themselves and draw blood in order to be heard by deity. That they have to jump up and down that they have to put their hand in the fire, that they have to they have to they have to in order for their prayer to be heard by their God. One of the easiest things to do is to multiply your prayer. There's, there's nothing sinful about saying a good prayer more than once. We're not usually going to do that in the same season of prayer. But the Lord's Prayer is a case in point, right? We don't make a habit. We don't pray the our Father to or three or four times just to make sure God hears us. We pray at once. It's a, a prayer that our Lord Jesus taught His disciples to pray. There are professed Christian churches that teach their congregants to pray the same prayer over and over and over and over and over and over again. I was part of that communion. Thinking, the, the mindset there is thinking that you'll be better heard for your many prayers, for the numbers. The numbers count. Our Lord Jesus is saying in this verse to his disciples and to us categorically no, they don't. You think God can't? Interpret the desire of your heart the first time you express it? You think he's got a, there's a language barrier there on his end? Our Lord Jesus 
you know, pulls back that wonderful veil and reminds his disciples, listen, God is sovereign. He doesn't hear you even because you open your mouth, open your heart and pray. He knows your prayer before you utter it. Why? Because he's the sovereign God. He knows everything. That doesn't mean you don't pray. The sinful heart is always looking for loopholes. Well, if God knows my prayer before I pray, why should I even pray? For the same reason that you obey in all matters of the will of God to glorify God and to enjoy Him. Prayer affords the true child of God wonderful opportunities to glorify God and to enjoy Him. To glorify God by... And I appreciated the, prayer, the pastoral prayer today because the volume, the great volume of it was dilating on God. His faithfulness his love, his strength, his commitments to his people, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working together to manifest their wisdom, their glory, their strength, their holiness. And that's, that lies at the heart of pastoral prayer, I think, because that's what the people of God most need to be reminded of. And then lifting up the needs of those who are dear to us to this sovereign God who cares. We don't, we don't pray for Aunt Bessie or little Billy thinking that our prayers are going to change God's will for them. We lift them up to honor and to show forth our conviction. He knows Bess and Bill. He knows what's going on in their life. He's the sovereign God. We acknowledge that by naming them. And I appreciated, I so appreciated, the deferment in prayer to whatever God knows is best here. Don't be afraid of saying, Lord, whatever you know is best for best. Or little Billy. My heart's desire is that you would help Aunt Bess, you know, to walk again or to breathe with less difficulty. The first thing we always pray for, right, is their salvation. Please don't ever pray the unloving prayer that asks for God to heal a loved one, a friend that's someone you're asked to pray for who's an unbeliever before you ask him to save them. That's the first prayer we pray for one another. It's the thing we thank God most for concerning his dealing with us. And it's the first prayer you always pray for someone else. And if you don't know their spiritual state, God does. Just defer to his knowledge at that point. Father, you know... Aunt Bess's spiritual condition. Please save her if she's unsaved. 
and help her to walk again if that would, would please you and afford her an opportunity to glorify and enjoy you by it. Same for little Billy. We can always defer to God's wisdom. And, it, you know, we don't know. I mean, it's this mistake the disciples made about the Lord Jesus when He announced to them that He was going to be betrayed and hung on a cross within the next 24 hours. No! What are you talking about? That's not, that can't happen. Their head and their heart wasn't in the right place. They weren't deferring to God. From before the foundation of the world, God planned sending His Son into the world to save His people from their sins. God planned the cross. God planned. And the Son embraced all the misery and woe. That was the reason He came into the world. And here are His, with the exception of one, spiritually alive apostles. The creme de la creme of His disciples not getting that point right. We have to be careful not to beat ourselves up when we get it wrong. God knows we can always defer to God. And that's, that's why the wisdom of our forefathers for that first catechism question in both the larger and the smaller, what is the chief end of man? Listen, if you're a child of God, it's the beginning and it's the end of your story. Everything in between to glorify and enjoy God. What's your chief end if you're a child of God? The primary purpose for your existence, your being, always, today, and into eternity, is to glorify and enjoy God. In those few words, there you have the summary statement of God's plan for His elect people. To glorify Him and to enjoy Him. So we're not heard for using many words. Repetition is vain. That is, it doesn't get you anything other than perhaps the displeasure of God and a bored audience if people are listening. Don't ever make the mistake that the heathen that our Lord Jesus is talking about here and think that you will be better heard by God for using many words. The Lord Jesus is teaching you right here, don't go there. Don't be like them. Don't do that. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. By all means, pray. But let your words be as few and as direct to the point as possible. That should be real easy when we're praying for the creature. 
it gets very, very challenging when we're dilating, thinking about God. There would be no end to our prayers if all we did was focus on God. If we could know Him as He as we will one day. Not perfectly and totally, but in ever increasing measure. You know, by the grace of God, we're going to a place where the wonder, the expanse, the depth, the height, the breadth of his being will be more obvious to us so that like a cup, we will always be full and overflowing with an ever-increasing knowledge of the true and living God that will find expression in the magnitude, the increasing magnitude of our praise, our prayers, our wonder, our thanksgiving. It's going, He is going, to preoccupy us in glory. You won't have to worry about whether the streets are paved with gold. You won't have to worry about the size of your habitation. You won't have to worry about whether the sun is shining. Because the Lord of glory will be there. You will be with Him and like Him. Drinking deeply draughts that would drown us now. Every whisper of your heart, every thought in your head, every word on your lip will be pleasing to Him. And by the wonder of that condition will be perfectly true. There's no sin there. There's no error there. There's no offense. It's to live and to die for. And thence we are going by the grace of God. Soon. Death will come to our door or the trumpet will blow. And we will very quickly and unceremoniously bid this world adieu. And that's why our Lord Jesus encourages His disciples, He encourages you and I, to be like one who's got his bags packed. Ready to go. You don't know the hour or the day. He's coming. That's enough to know. The dutiful servant wants to be looking for his master's return. Every day. Today would be a good day. Maybe it will be today. I hope so. I'm ready. Let's go. And that doesn't, that doesn't, that doesn't make you a poor steward. That makes you a good steward. Because you're going to be doing the things you're supposed to be doing that day. You're not going to be 
sitting in the corner twiddling your thumbs, hoping something's going to happen. You're going to be want you want to be found by your master as a faithful servant, preoccupying yourself, busying yourself joyfully with the business of his kingdom, the honor and glory of his name, the welfare of his people. It's wonderful. Last week, one of the things I mentioned was that there are no magic prayers. Just say these words. Remind myself and you that that's true. That your heart matters. God knows. You can pray a good prayer wrongly. You can pray acceptable words in an unacceptable way. And that has mostly to do with the heart. How's your heart with God? If you, if you can't, if I can't muster a robust, I, I, can't, I can't think of anything. For my part, I don't know of anything that stands as a veil or as a curtain between face-to-face communion with God. That doesn't mean it's not there. It just means I'm ignorant of it. But that's where you and I want to be for our part. If, if you know that there's an issue of behavior in your head, in your heart, in your hands that's dropped a veil between you and God, you need to deal with that today. Preferably before the end of this service. Acknowledge that. I mean, we began that. When Josh led us in prayer, he, he touched on that principle. It's so important. We don't get to, to have acceptable communion with God with a veil of known sin between us. Our Lord Jesus came into the world to remove that. And it's the evidence, it's what John was talking about in his first epistle. We don't get to allow these veils to come between us and think that God's just somehow going to overrule it because I'm his child. He's waiting for me to behave like his child. Who, a child who loves him above all his creation, above every sin, above every temptation. And that's what that prayer that's what asking him to deal with that issue is all about. I can't, Father, you know my struggle with this sin. It's recurrent. Manage it for me. Help, help me to know what I'm supposed to do, what I'm supposed to turn away from. Work in me a heart that loves you above the pleasure I hope to have or the satisfaction or the venting that's a result of the behavior that's being repented of. There are many other biblical warnings. Um, you think of a passage like James 1. 
verses 5 through 8, where he's talking about unbelief, not believing. The person that's praying believes in God, that there is a God, but he's not praying to the true and living God. And that voids the acceptableness of his prayer. And so that's why we study to know God as best we're able. God knows what we're, where we are in the course of our pilgrimage. He doesn't treat someone who should be mature like a newborn babe. Psalm 66, verse 18, If I regard iniquity in my heart, that is, if I hold on to known sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah chapter 1, 12 to 20, being, allowing myself to be caught up with the culture around me or the influence of ungodly leaders even within the church. justifying my sin by their office. Some of you children will experience this with your parents, your mom and your dad, who behave in a way that they shouldn't. That doesn't mean just because they're your mom and your dad. You know, if mom or dad gets angry or throws things or takes God's name in vain or kicks the dog, that doesn't mean it's okay for you to do that. You're growing up to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And God does want you to love and honor your parents, but not more than you love and honor Him. We all have that challenge before us. To love God first and foremost. More than ourselves, more than our spouse, more than our parents, more than our children, more than our dear little grandchildren more than our job, more than our health, more than our savings. We love God first and foremost. That's our primary mission in life. And then to commune with Him. And that's why this subject is so important. To commune with God in prayer in a way that's acceptable to Him. If it's acceptable to Him, it will be beneficial to us and helpful for others. If it's not acceptable to him, it's not going to be beneficial to me, or to you, or to those you pray for. Jeremiah 7, wonderful chapter. I encourage you to read that later today if you have the opportunity. Ezekiel has a lot to say about prayer. Let's summarize. Every child of God has the witness, every true child of God, every regenerate man, woman, boy, girl, has the Holy Spirit of God within them pointing to the Lord Jesus as the, the venues, the means, the one who can facilitate our relationship with God. 
The Holy Spirit's bigger than we are. Thankfully. And it's that yearning that He puts into us that keeps us from just turning our back and walking away. Unbelievers who profess to be Christians but truly aren't can do that. But the true child of God can't. They can back up like this for a while, sometimes quite a while. I mean, this is what David did. Sins, kills, sitting with Bathsheba, he kills Uriah, and he's not repenting of it. And his heart's growing cold. He knows it's wrong. Until God raises up a trembling servant to go and confront him. And he knows that there's a good chance you know, David's just going to pull out his sword and cut his head off. He doesn't want to hear it right now. But what happened? God broke David's heart. He repented. God forgave him. David was restored. Same for Peter. I don't know that man. You know, in the rooster crows, David or Peter goes out and weeps. And our Lord Jesus restores him, forgives him. If you're a child of God, the Lord Jesus has already paid for all of your sins, including the ones that you're committing today and that you will commit tomorrow. That doesn't mean you don't get to repent of them. It does mean they're paid for they weren't paid for, you won't be going to heaven. That's the condition of the unbeliever. Their sins are unpaid for. And that's why on the day of judgment, the debt comes due. And it's off to hell they go to pay the debt. Our Lord Jesus went to hell to pay the debt for the sins of all the men and women, boys and girls that God the Father gave him. And they're all paid for. Every single one of them. And that's why God can love you and be very pleased with your and my imperfect love of Him. He looks at us and He doesn't see sin. May God help us all to pay attention to the do-nots as well as the do-exhortations in God's Word as we read it. I hope you're in this book daily, humbling yourself before God, asking Him to open His Word to you. It's not about how much you read or how fast you read, but that you read, mark, and inwardly digest His Word every day. No fasting from God's Word. No fasting from prayer. You can fast in order to pray, but you can't fast from prayer in order to eat or do anything else. We need to be in God's Word and we need to be in communion with Him and prayer with Him every single day and continually through the day. It's our heritage. It's our birthright. It's what the Holy Spirit compels us to be and do. Not so that we may glorify 
and enjoy God. Now and forever. Let's close in prayer. Father, we pray that we would each have the inward witness of the Holy Spirit that we are yours. And that if we don't have that witness, that we would cry out to you for mercy and grace. That you would have us at the expense of your Son. We thank you that you sent him into the world to save sinners like us. And that everyone who calls on your name, who looks to the Lord Jesus, will live and not die. As we've already been encouraged this morning, may we each look for opportunities to share the simplicity and the power of your gospel message with others this coming week, even this Lord's Day, to pray for them and to pray for opportunity to talk to them about Jesus. What you know to be needful to these ends, especially our communion with you, our praying to you in a manner that gives you pleasure, doing the things we ought, avoiding the things we ought, We'll be careful to give you the praise, the thanks, and all the glory. And all God's people said, Amen.